Welcome listeners in podcast land. Whether or not you believe there are actually only three kinds of people, those who can count and those who can't, this is the Beyond Ring podcast, where we explore faith out of bounds. Late that evening, a group of unknown disciples packed their few belongings and left for a distant shore, for they could not bear to stay for another moment in the place where their Messiah had just been crucified. Weighed down with sorrow, they left that place never to return. Instead, they travelled a great distance in search of a land that they could call home. After a few months of difficult travel, they finally happened upon an isolated area that was ideal for setting up a new community. Here they found fertile ground, clean water and a nearby forest from which to harvest material needed to build shelter. So they settled there, finding a community far from Jerusalem, a community where they vowed to keep the memory of Christ alive and live in simplicity, love and forgiveness just as he had taught them. The members of this community lived in great solitude for over a hundred years, spending their days reflecting on the life of Jesus and attempting to remain faithful to his ways. And they did all this despite the overwhelming sorrow in their heart. But their isolation was eventually broken when early one morning, a small band of missionaries reached the settlement these missionaries were amazed at the community they found. What was most startling to them was that these people had no knowledge of the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, for they had left Jerusalem before his return from the dead on the third day. Without hesitation, the missionaries gathered together all the community members and recounted what had occurred after the imprisonment and bloody crucifixion of their Lord. That evening, there was a great festival in the camp as people celebrated the news of the missionaries. And yet, as the night progressed, one of the missionaries noticed that the leader of the community was absent. This bothered the young man, so he set out to look for this respected elder. Eventually, he found the community's leader crouched low in a small hut on the fringe of the village, praying and weeping. Why are you in such sorrow? asked the young missionary in amazement. Today is a great time of celebration. It may indeed be a day for great celebration, but this is also a day of sorrow, replied the elder who remained crouched on the floor. Since the founding of this community, we have followed the ways taught to us by Christ. We pursued his ways faithfully, even though it cost us dearly. And we remained resolute, despite the belief that death had defeated him and would one day defeat us also. The elder slowly got to his feet and looked the missionary compassionately in the eyes. Each day we have forsaken our very lives for him because we judged him wholly worthy of the sacrifice, wholly worthy of our being. But now, following your news, I am concerned that my children and my children's children may follow him, not because of his radical life and supreme sacrifice, 
but selfishly, because his sacrifice will ensure their personal salvation and eternal life. With this, the elder turned and left the hut, making his way to the celebrations that could be heard dimly in the distance, leaving the missionary crouched on the floor. It's likely one's response to claims of the resurrection of Jesus are either, I'm willing to accept that happened, or I reject that happened. This has been common throughout history since the very first resurrection claim, and much of the scriptures of the New Testament seek to address this claim. Did it happen? Is it a factual story? Or didn't it happen? Was it myth or metaphor of the early church? The response to the claims of the resurrection can get stuck just bouncing around between these two views. However, this parable causes us to engage with a different, perhaps deeper question. It challenges us to consider the deeper reasons we might affirm a particular faith claim, to perhaps consider whether we've actually bought into this system of ideas and beliefs because there is in fact some personal payoff for us. It provocatively asks whether we perhaps affirm the resurrection with our words and yet deny it with our lives, we have to at least acknowledge and consider the possibility. Driven by these questions, we've now changed how we're engaging with the very conversation. We are now examining our assumptions, our unacknowledged motivations, our underlying beliefs. If left unexamined, these can act as a railroad, limiting our future choices to a particular, more restricted path. Parables have a remarkable way of bringing to the surface the assumptions which undergird and govern our beliefs and behaviours, and yet which can remain unknown invisible and unconscious, but nonetheless active. That is the task of this episode's lens, philosophy. A discipline that questions our questions, that helps us understand how we understand, that helps us see how we see. In its essence, it causes us to reflect on why we believe what we believe. So what did you make of the parable you heard at the start of this episode? What did it cause you to think about? What did it mean to you? It was called Being the Resurrection and was written and told by this episode's guest, Peter Rollins, a voice we've been chasing for this podcast since we first began recording. It took rocking up to his house in LA in order to make the interview happen. Pete, whose work and interests are the field of philosophy, but also psychoanalytic theory, has championed what he calls pyrotheology or radical theology. This is a type of theology that centers on the idea that we need to keep whittling away at that which gets in the way of God and truth, as putting fire to the layers of belief that we put over reality to protect ourselves from reality. It's challenging work, but its aim is to put us on a journey of greater depth and honesty, and therefore, assist us in embracing the reality of what it means to be human. So we're going to go on a journey with Peter Rollins. A warning, he is a great thinker and a wide reader. So this episode is name-dropping central. Don't expect to be across all the people you hear referenced, but maybe see it as a meet and greet of various philosophers with whom you can converse later if you want to have a deeper chat. And we do appreciate there's a density to many of the ideas raised and 
that because Pete likes to prod and poke around that which lays behind our beliefs and behaviours, you may find yourself chewing over these ideas beyond this interview. So put on those reading glasses as we explore the lens of philosophy with Peter Rollins. Peter Rollins, thanks for coming Beyondering. It's great to be here. Well, you're here. I'm yeah. not with you. You're with me in LA. Uh, you set a really high bar. I mean, we're, now it's just going to be expected. Our guests yeah. will host us, that they'll offer us tea and coffee and sit us down at their table. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so thank you. You're a big fan of parables. Yeah. So I want to throw a parable to you oh. and allow you to enter into it, and that might and that'll lead us into our next place. Uh, the world is ending. It's dying. The the environment is is collapsing, and humanity's Humanity no longer has a viable place to live on Earth. So a small group of people are chosen uh, to be sent into space to form a, a new colony on the, on the planet that's been found. Um, you're there at the launch pad as this small select group of people are walking towards the rocket. You're able to grab their hand for just one minute. What do you explain to them about the point of Christianity? <laughs> Wow, that's it's that's interesting because um, they're going to another planet. They're uh, they are the future of humanity. Yeah, the future of ah, the future of humanity. Oh, very good. Okay, um, I, I you know I'm I'm reminded of my friend Kester Bruins, book, getting high mm -hmm. because the book itself is about our human desire to escape the earth to mm. get into the heavens either through LSD or through technology, mm. and that actually. Part of being human is about embracing the grit and grime of the world, embracing our finitude and our earthiness and our bodies. So, uh, you know, perhaps because they're symbolically entering the heavens, going to a new place, what happens is we, when we're doing that in our lives, we think the new place might be a new Eden. A new paradise, a new something that where we can kind of right all of the wrongs of the past and have perfection. And so, I guess, you know, I might say that uh, you know part of Christianity and its subversive core is about um, destroying that whole notion of some heavenly realm without the shadow side, without our darkness, where where we're what, what's called the beautiful soul. Uh, Hegel had this idea of the beautiful soul. Sounds lovely. You know, we've got a beautiful soul, but actually, what it means is you so want to have beauty inside that you put all your your darkness out. You project it onto others. So there's it's a developmental phase when a child says there's a monster under the bed. Mm -hmm. That's like the developmental phase where the child can't see its own fears, its own anxiety, its own anger, its own uh, feelings that it has to repress. So it puts them into the monster under the bed. But of course, the monster is within them. It's not under the bed. So um, for me, Christianity is about um, creating a space where we acknowledge that wherever we go, whether it's some other planet or some other country or some other relationship, uh, don't expect that to be the new Eden, the new paradise. That actually part of Christianity is about a transcendent God entering into the mud and mire of the world, finding a place here and finding the sacred in the midst of life, not in some sort of like future place. 
Wow. So your so your message to the future of humanity is don't get your hopes up. Don't get your hopes up. Yeah, keep, keep fighting. Well, I mean, this can you not, can you not see yourself at the airport when we get home? Yeah, I know. But I, I'm very interested in Camus' rebel at the moment. So Camus, a fascinating thinker, he's very super cool. He made philosophy cool. Very, he makes smoking look cool. He's always got a cigarette hanging out of his mouth, and he, um, you know, he he talked about how the absurd, and actually, my next book is about the absurd, mm-hmm. Christianity and the absurd. Uh, but for him, the absurd is the experience of a being that desires meaning, purpose, significance, encountering a universe that kind of resists giving you that, right? Mm. Now this, for Freud, is a very early experience. It's the kid who wants to win every game or wants to climb every tree. They can't. They can't win every game because other kids want to win. And they can't climb every tree because their bodies don't let them. They're weak. This experience of kids I, are weak. Yeah, kids are, they're rough. <laughs> yeah, they can't do it. They, no, they won't climb the tree. Their bodies won't let them. And and so that that for Freud, that's called the, the reality principle. The pleasure principle is I want to climb the tree. Mm-hmm. The reality principle is you can't. You can. mm-hmm. But and this is the experience of the absurd. When you desire something and the universe resists it, it's the absurd. And um, for Camus, we all want to get rid of this experience of the absurd, uh, and we either get rid of it by embracing kind of in a sense the reality principle go oh, like life is just life let's try not to achieve anything let's just you know meditate and, and and remove ourselves from the world or by trying to uh, embrace the pleasure principle where we can have everything we want we can have what will make us whole and complete we can climb every tree we can materialize our desires um, but uh, you know for Camus both of these are problematic the conservative is the one who wants to conserve reality. The revolutionary is the one who imagines a new world, a new way of being where everything will be wonderful. Uh, in contrast to that, uh, Camus has this figure of the rebel. The rebel is the one who lives with the absurd. They experience this, uh, this gap between what they would like and who they are and what they have. And, but they enjoy that. They don't. They don't get terrified by that lack. They enjoy it. They they use it as fuel for transformation, for movement. Um, this this is the figure that I'm interested in in terms of Christianity. Is that actually instead of trying to create a new world, a perfect world, something new, some utopia where everything's going to be wonderful, how do we give ourselves over to continual revolution, continual change, continual transformation, and enjoy that? That's the true political move for me. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, with the, uh, the those same chosen ones making their way to the rocket ship, yeah, is, is that what you've just described there? Is that something of, if you were to ask that question of how would you describe radical theology? Yes. Is that something of how you would begin to describe that to those future of humanity? Absolutely. I mean, radical theology for me, there's a there's a story from Northern Ireland that sums it up, uh, where this guy who's a member of the IRA. The IRA used to have this technique where they'd plant an explosive in a building and then they'd phone up the authorities and say, you got, you know, you got to get everybody out. Five minutes to get everyone out. So this little story circulated that this IRA guy dies, goes up to heaven, and he's waiting there and St. Peter comes out with this book, opens it up, starts to look through, and he looks at this guy and says, listen, mate, your, your name's not in the book. You were in the IRA. You're not getting into heaven. And this guy, Seamus, says, oh, he says, no, 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 no. He says, you misunderstand. I'm not trying to get in. you got five minutes to get out, right? <laughs> now, that, the, the, the way that story works is it works because of the surprise of Seamus' motives. 
You think, of course, he wants to get in, but actually Seamus has a strategy to get everybody out of heaven, mm-hmm. to get God and the heavenly host out, to eviscerate heaven and get God into the earth. This, for me, is the, the twist of Christianity. Christianity has a twist. The believer naively thinks that the biblical narrative is there to help them get to heaven, right? Mm-hmm. A place of perfection and wholeness and completeness, a place where you can have perfect peace and happiness, right? But actually then you realize, no, I've been recruited into the subversive, clandestine organization of dissidents whose very aim is the opposite, is to blow up heaven. And, and find the sacred not as a dimension outside of the earth mm-hmm. but as a, as a dimension within earth and materiality itself mm-hmm. so you often talk about um, not a life after death but a life before death yeah. that's sort of what you're saying absolutely and this is why I call this pyrotheology because pyrotheology is the in a sense setting fire to heaven the, the pyro the fire the purifying fire of theology that then brings us into the earth to the concrete and that's that for me is 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 the move of Christianity, but we don't know it when we first enter. That's the secret. In the same way, you go to a therapist and you think they're there to fix you. You go to a therapist and you say to them, "There's a big trapdoor beside me, full of monsters and ghosts and darkness, and I, I I'm being drawn to it. And I help me escape it. Help me not go there." And the therapist says, "No, my job is actually to push you in." Right? I'm going to actually push you into that black hole of the monsters and the ghosts and the ghouls and you're going to have to wrestle with them. Now, if I knew that when I, before I went, I would never go. Sure. You're never going to go to a therapist if you go, holy crap, they're going to have to make fun. me face that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I want them to make me happy. I want them to fix things. I want them to tell me how I can get that person back or whatever. And the therapist very gradually uh, shows that there's something else that has to happen. In the same way people go to Christianity because they think this is going to heal me, make me whole and complete. God's going to be the answer. It's going to bring me to this heavenly place of, of having the answers, knowing the truth, being part of the right crowd. But in pyrotheology, it's like, yes, that's fine. That's why people arrive. But then this subversive message is revealed that actually Christianity is a this-worldly experience. It draws you into embracing life. In fact, your friends who are going up into space to another planet, why are they doing it? They're doing it because we screwed up this planet. Why did we screw up this planet? Because we're so wanting products and things that will make us whole and complete. We're so, like, we're always frenetically pursuing a a better and better and different life that will make us whole. We burn up and destroy the planet. So what's going to happen with that new bunch? They're just going to destroy whatever planet they go to unless they can experience this different modality of life so is it possible to have a religion that wants to keep self-critiquing that wants to keep unpicking itself because if you're saying that theology at its best should actually help uh, undermine the unhelpful drives we have is it possible to form community that can do that or in gathering and in having a purpose and meaning and agenda does it then self-serve and like... I mean, I do think it's possible to have rituals that help us to self-critique, self-reflect. Uh, I think there's basically two ways that rituals can function. Rituals can function to help us feel more at home in the world. You go out every Tuesday, play poker with your friends, you go to the pub, have a few drinks, whatever, and it helps you, you know, navigate the world, that's fine. But then there are also rituals that break things open. That, that cause you to think and to look at things, to, to feel not at home, but not at home. To feel what Freud called the uncanny, which is like the, uh, the feeling of being not at home in your own world. Mm-hmm. And for me, uh, 
the kind of radical form of Christianity is about the uncanny. It's about experiencing disruption in our lives. Um, and sadly, I think, you know, Feuerbach, you know, famously did an amazing critique of religion as projection. That religion seems to be often the, the projection of the ideals of the community. God is the justifier, the guarantor of our way of thinking about the world, of who we think is inside and outside, of who, what team, football team we support, whatever it is. God kind of, in a sense, is that which guarantees our, our system and structure of meaning. The great justifier of our own whatever yeah our own worlds the mm. kind of basically god puts the full stop to our yes god or god says yes to our yes <laughs> yeah. right god is the yes to our yes um and and you know interesting Karl Barth, you know really liked feuerbach and said yeah feuerbach exposes the problem with what we would today call progressive christianity um liberal christianity it's ultimately a projection of our own common sense our own ethics our own views of the world it's just god is a self-help but for Barth who's influenced by Kierkegaard. Um, God is the no to our yes. God always enters the world not as a yes to our yes, not as an affirmation of, yes, you're right, and the way you see the world's great. And what Descartes called the guarantor of meaning, God is the guarantor of our meaning. But God enters as a, as a projectile, John Caputo would say. God is not a projection, but a projectile. Um, always a no to our yeses, always an explosive in our kingdoms. Mm. That, a disruption. A disruption. Yeah. Uh, the conservatives talk about this. Conservative Christians get this. In a sense, they, they are very sceptical of liberals because they say you're always, you want a gospel that tickles your ears. Yes. You hear that yeah, from, from yeah, fundamentalism? Yeah. You want a gospel that makes you feel it's good. Works for you, yeah. Works for you. Now, the funny thing is, so I think they're right, but the problem is fundamentalism, I think, does exactly the Real same thing. Right? Does it. So the, the only way around this, I think, is you create rituals of, of ongoing disruption that, 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 that challenge you and disrupt you. So how do you do that? Um, just very quickly, one thing, for example, is you find who is the outsider in your community and you listen to them and you see yourself through their eyes. You create a ritual that allows you to always be looking out for those who are silent, outsiders, oppressed, and you let them be the voice that disrupts and, and, and undermines you. Because the outsider always is an undermining voice if we listen to them. They, they, they show us things about ourselves we'd rather not see. Now there's always a temptation for any of these structures to ossify, reify, and become, you know. That's, that's the story of the, as you know, the Buddhist uh, who's, who's always meditating, this Buddhist master in this temple, and this cat's always running around, so he ties the cat to the tree during meditation, and then he dies, and the disciples continue to tie, tie the cat to the tree during meditation, and eventually the cat dies, and they buy a new cat to tie to the tree during meditation, and after seven generations, the, the, the tree finally dies, and they plant the new tree to tie the seventh generation of cats to, and then the, the scholars come along, and they write learned treaties about the, the spiritual significance of tying cats to trees during prayer. Um, that, that parable simply shows that tendency for something that is useful that to become um, enshrined yeah. and, then, and then lose any of its usefulness. Mm. Yeah. My husband arrived home the other day and declared himself to be an atheist. 60 years we've been married and now he decides he doesn't believe in God. Makes me wonder if he didn't just come to church to meet women. 
Mind you, I suppose that worked at least the one time. I told him that if he was going to play golf every Sunday, eat the same chicken parmigiana dinner every time we go out, only sit in his favourite recliner chair to watch the cricket, and only play Sudoku with a red pen, then he was just as religious as ever, regardless of whether God was a part of it. Do you think religion can be present even in secular forms? Very good. That's a great question from Beryl. Um, yeah, there's lots in that actually. That's very, very, very good. Um, one is, yes, first of all, I think religion is a universal. It's not about belief in God or not. Um, defining religion is always difficult. It's like philosophy. My mum like, is very proud that I went to university, but she still doesn't know what I studied. Yeah. Every now and again she says psychology. She has to write it down. She has to write down philosophy. And then, you know, obviously she's not really sure what philosophy is, but then I can reassure her that philosophers don't really know what philosophy <laughs> is. Um, but I, I, have a, I have a way of defining religion that um, I, you know, I can't defend here, but broadly speaking, I define religion as that which offers us certainty and satisfaction broadly speaking, that religion is that which offers to fill the gap, the void that we feel at the heart of our being. And of course, then if you, if you go with that, you've got secular and sacred religions. Any, any way of trying to fill the lack that we feel in our being could be described as religious. There's three, there's three ways that we generally deal with the lack in our being. We either try to flee it, fill it, or inflict it on someone else. So we try to flee it, which means that we go out, get drunk, we are workaholics, we kind of just, we feel this anxiety of life, but we just keep ourselves busy to try to avoid confronting it. Or we try to fill it, uh, which would be, you know, money, fame, sex, something that American dreams, something that will, will fill that lack, make us whole and complete. Or we inflict it on others, which is where you take this uh, sense of lack and you try to put it onto somebody else. So for example, in, in the myth of redemptive violence, some violence has been done to a person, they feel robbed of something, this lack in their being, and revenge is the way to, you know, get healing from that. None of, none of these work, I don't think, but I think religious solutions are ways to fill that lack. And for me, religionless Christianity is a way of not filling that lack, but tarrying with it and, and, and learning to make something positive out of it. But what Beryl's talking about there, as well, is about ritual. She's very, it's like the ritual is part of life. She's talking about these rituals that her husband does. Absolutely. Like when I talk about liturgy, um, people think I'm talking about church. I'm not. Mm. I mean, I talk about the liturgy of the Irish pub mm. as opposed to the liturgy of the sports bar. Mm. You know, they both have the same rituals, alcohol, music, and people. Mm. But the sports bar is a type of ritual where you escape your suffering by getting drunk, listening to loud music, and having inane conversations. Mm. A good Irish pub, you have a drink and you talk about your week. You you have serious conversations with your friends and the music helps you think about things because it's, it's, it's music with depth. Mm -hmm. It's music about life and suffering and mourning. Mm -hmm. there, are two, there are two liturgical acts, but one is a liturgical act that's religious, mm -hmm. uh, i.e. helping you try to flee, fill or inflict your, your, your lack. And the other is a liturgical experience that helps you look at the difficulties of your life, the problems, and, 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 and make peace with those. Mm. So um, in some respects, we all have both of those in our lives. But for me, if we don't have those rituals that challenge us and, and get us to think differently, 
That's the problem. You mentioned there this idea of the lack mm-hmm. and that religion as being a cover or a, or a you know an, an attempt to um, to mend this lack yes. within us. A, a really for me a really significant and formative idea from earlier in your work that I read um, was this contrast of this idea of everyone having a god shaped hole. Mm-hmm. But you talked about it. No, actually, it's a God-forged hole. I remember you talked about... Uh, I'm retelling you your own story. <laughs> about sitting in a cafe and feeling the absence of a loved one. and But that loved one was just as absent for everyone else in the cafe, but because they didn't have that relationship, because they didn't know that person, they had no sense of absence, just as you had no sense of absence of all of their loved ones. Mm-hmm. So how, how does that square about not having a God-shaped hole, having a God-forged hole, and yet having this intrinsic lack, as you described, that we're seeking to cover. Yes, very good. Well, and, and that stuff is kind of, was very influenced by uh, Jean-Paul Sartre. Now, you're asking me to square what I wrote in How Not to Speak of God with my later work, which yeah. I can do. Let's, <laughs> uh, let's see if we can do it in a, in a, in a, a non-convoluted way. Um, okay, so what I'm arguing in general is that to be human is to experience um, a lack at the core of our being. And I argue that because to be a subject, to be a self, to be an I, means that there is a non-I. To have an interior world, there is an exterior world. And the very act of there being an interior and an exterior is a space, a lack, a gap. I mean, I suddenly I'm like, oh, I'm not one with everything. I'm not pre-subject and object. I am a subject in a world of objects. But it, it goes deeper than that. Um, uh, in the mirror phase uh, of development at around six months old, we get a sense of an inner world, a sense of self. And part of that is involved with um, looking in the mirror, seeing ourselves in the mirror and identifying and saying, that's me. That's me. Mm-hmm. Now, the mirror phase, Lacan's very precise on this. There's, a, there's another dimension. The kid does, just doesn't look in the mirror and see, it, see himself or herself. The child also looks to find the mother or father to see if they're also looking. Because the mother or the father, they have to legitimate the image. They say, oh, look how strong you are. Look how big you are. Look how wonderful you are. Look how beautiful you are. And the child hears this, begins to construct a sense of themselves through their parents' words. Mm-hmm. And um, But what happens then is they have an experience of themselves as broken and weak. Because, you know, we're all born prematurely um, in that there are other animals that are born pretty much ready to go mm-hmm. but humans Form that comes out yeah can walk basically can walk and go and eat and, mm-hmm. and whatever but our humans we're, we're born like prematurely in the sense that we need to be looked after mm-hmm. so we experience ourselves very weak as very weak but we start to identify with something stronger now for lacan this was not a, a developmental moment it's actually something that marks our whole lives mm-hmm. and you see it actually in the selfie uh, our technology has got to a point where you see proof of what Lacan's saying yeah, every day. Because the selfie is always for another. A selfie is never just for yourself. Mm-hmm. That's why you put it on social media yeah. and you send it to somebody. Because that's a mirror image. But you want someone to then say, you look beautiful or you look good or look how adventurous you are. There's not too many crap selfies going around. No, no, no. It's kind of like an idealized <laughs> kind of structure. Self. And if it is a ne- like a negative, that's also a positive. Like, oh, look, I'm, look at me. I'm so messy, carefree, carefree or whatever. Um, now, people make fun of that. Go, oh, selfie's always for another. But actually, it'd be more weird 
if you took selfies and didn't show them with anybody else. Or <laughs> that you just took selfies, put them in a personal you know, album and just quietly at night sipped your scotch and flicked through your selfies. That would be psychotic, right? You need the, the other to legitimate. Um, now, the reason why I say that is because two things happen when we're young then. There is the difference between uh, what we have and what we would like to have. Because what we experience in the first lack is, oh, I'm not one with my mother anymore. I'm like, I'm out there. So you experience a sense of who I am and then what I would like to have, which is wholeness, completeness, oneness again. And also the difference between who I am and who I would like to be, which is the difference between me, me and my weak form and who I would like to be. And that marks us into our adult life. Mm-hmm. If I have a relationship with you, I have a relationship not just with your lived life, but as Adam Phillips says, also your unlived life. Yeah. Because that impacts you in frustration or whatever, sure. or unhappiness. There's other people in the room. Yes. Yeah. yeah it's, 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 and it's in the room, you know, who you want to be. Oh, I wish I wasn't married. I wish I was traveling around the world, whatever it is. Now, that's the lack I mean. This, that to be human is to experience this, la- this difference between who you are, who you'd like to be. Mm. By the way, it's called guilt. Because guilt is, oh, I think I should be something that I'm not. Right. So, and, or, falling short. Falling short, I yeah. I have an idea of what I should be and right. I'm not living up to that. Right. Uh, you know, if you don't give money to somebody on the street, you feel maybe feel guilty because you're imagining I could be the type of person who would give money to somebody mm. on the street. Mm. Uh, the other is dissatisfaction, which is in a sense going, I am lacking something. And if I had a better life, if I was married to somebody else, if I had... A, um, a different job or lived in a different place then I'd be happy so this is the lack that we try to avoid and cover over now Kierkegaard uh, in a sense when he wrote his book on anxiety was saying that that we have to feel this anxiety we try to avoid confronting it all the time in our lives but actually we need to face it and confront it that's kind of what I mean by the God-shaped hole. The gap is already there, but we try to avoid it. We don't look at it. Mm. But actually, part of faith for me is about actually experiencing that lack mm. as a lack. Mm. So you experience the depth of that. You experience it in your very being. Now, the next stage, however, is you experience that deeply. You, you confront it. You confront that trauma because trauma is a lack. Um, but then for me, the, the salvation of Christianity is in a sense being able to carry that lack, to be able to make peace with it, to turn it into something productive. So guilt, for example, you don't get rid of guilt. You don't get rid of the sense of this and not living up to something, but it becomes potentiality. It becomes, oh my goodness, I could, I could try and you know, be a better person. I could try and do more for my community. It's something that no longer like, you know, weighs on you it's in a negative thing. What you could become. It's a hand of, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Dissatisfaction to, yeah. to new life, to new yeah. possibilities. Yeah. Exactly. So you're changing the relationship with your lack rather exactly. than eliminating it or filling it. It's just a change. Yes, just simply a change in how you perceive it and how it operates. Mm-hmm. And that's basically the difference between me and John Caputo in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, John Caputo, who's a big mentor of mine, 
because you know he he often will say to me you're too negative you know you think that like babies come out into the world and they're just like a, the horror of existence and like what is this i've become human i hate this is terrifying and he's like oh it's all you know it's all candy floss and, and unicorns right but in a sense it's a I, generous description of his work yes exactly there you go. that's that's sean Buddha's work in a nutshell yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but the way i the way i articulate it is that actually the, I start with this lack of feeling negative as guilt and dissatisfaction and doubt and all of this stuff and how it weighs on us because that's often how we, we experience it at first. It's whenever we realize we start to question our tradition, our beliefs, all of that, it's terrifying. Am I going to lose all my friends? Am I going to lose my sanity? Am I going to, am I going to lose my job? It's terrifying. But then when you read Caputo's work, He's, he's healthy. That's the unhealthy. But when you're healthy, mm. you still have all of those things. But now it's like oh, new possibilities arise, mm. new relationships, new ideas, you know. Um, and actually, I, I'm just working with helping people get to the point where Caputo is. Sure. Because when you read his work, it's like it affirms this spatial thing. That It affirms the unknowing. It affirms complexity and ambiguity. Mm. Whereas, whereas I start by saying... We're terrified of it mm-hmm. because to be honest for many people especially you know coming i say out of a church their first experience yeah. of yeah. questioning their story yeah. is traumatic it's horrific, yeah. it's, horrific. It's, yeah. it's terrifying yeah. paul tillett calls it the moment when your unbroken myth becomes broken yeah so yeah so he says like an unbroken myth is when you're you've got a narrative a tradition that explains your world completely fine that you believe it's true mm-hmm. but you will eventually encounter something that breaks it whether it's other people other views other experiences and he says at that point you've basically got two choices you either repress it and like go oh i'm not listening to that you know everything's fine that's where for him fundamentalism starts to exist fundamentalism isn't the belief that you're right it's the belief that you're wrong that you cannot acknowledge right that's that's it so like you know you know you could just believe you're right because you're surrounded by people you think the same as you but as soon as you encounter someone who gets you to question you're like Oh yeah, never thought about it like that. Maybe, maybe I, I have got it wrong, right? But the fundamentalism that we, when we use that term, like we use the term fundamentalism, we're often defining someone who actually um, is repressing their doubt and their unknowing. And the certainty is therefore a reaction formation. It's something that betrays a deep uncertainty that hasn't been able to be brought to the surface. Uh, but for Tillich, the, the answer is not to go from one unbroken myth to another because by the way that's the mm-hmm. other thing you do either repress or you replace mm. so you repress or you replace yeah. and you've mm. seen that with like evangelicals you become new atheists yeah, or vice yeah, versa yeah. it's like it's at the level of what it's completely different mm. but at yes. the level of how it functions it's exactly the same mm. um, so you either repress replace or you learn to live with a broken myth mm. and, um, and you know for Tillich that's where theology becomes theopoetics and that's where theology becomes um, an invitation to, uh, you know, something beyond mere objectivity. Mm. Mm. I mean, I resonate so much with what you're saying, and I'm just trying to work out, though, what it looks like for someone to encounter this idea for the first time, that we're born with a, a trauma that acts like a shadow throughout our life, that without our awareness causes us to reach out for things, to find a utopian ideal, to meet it in all sorts of ways. And so we actually need to somehow name it, cut ourselves off from that impulsive drive and actually come to terms with the fact that we have a 
a brokenness, a lack, a, yeah. a, and, and find some way to live at peace with that. Yes. So, um, you know, that idea initially sounds perhaps quite um, like a vacuum, like, but hang on, shouldn't I grow? Shouldn't I reach out? Shouldn't I? Um, I'm left with only the object of sitting with my shit. <laughs> yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. Well, turning the shit into fuel. I mean, if, if you want to use the analogy of shit, it's, it's, that's the rebel. That's what the rebel does. The rebel takes dissatisfaction and finds satisfaction in it. They, they, the, the rebel enjoys their dissatisfaction. Mm. Now, there's different types of enjoyment. You don't have to, you know, like it, but you like it in the sense of it. It's what fuels your movement. The difference between the rebel and the revolutionary is the revolutionary thinks that they can get rid of the lack if they do a certain amount of things, right? They can get to the, the kingdom of God as an end point. Whereas the rebel says, no, the kingdom of God is the very act of rebellion itself. Mm. And I understand that I should have got this critique more. I can understand if you read my books, you could get the idea that I am in favor of what can be called religion as the reality principle. So if you say, for me, there's basically two ways of dealing with the, the anxiety of existence. Mm. One is uh, conspire with industries of the reality principle. And the other is conspire with industries of the pleasure principle. Industries of the reality principle are people who say, you can't change anything. You can't be the person you want to be. And there's a truth to that. There's like, you can't, you know, the fantasy you have of this ideal, no, you'll never get there. Mm -hmm. So the reality principle says, just forget it. Watch Netflix or, mm -hmm. you know, do some, some meditation and just try and like detach from existence. Mm -hmm. Now, funnily enough, the reason why you do that is because often you find yourself not enjoying life. So the, the very act of trying to detach yourself from life is actually a way to try to get pleasure from life. Mm -hmm. But the other side is you go, I can have everything I want. I and I live in LA, that's the big thing here. You know, <laughs> you can have, you can materialize your desires, you can have what you want. Um, and you, you give yourself to industries that say that. It sounds like I have said that Christianity is a religion of the reality principle. You know, you've got a lack in your being. You cannot be everything. The tyranny of happiness, the tyranny of certainty, all of that, right? But no, I'm saying, and I'm trying to clarify this in my next book, that I think Christianity is a religion of the absurd. And when I say that, what I mean is the absurd is what exists in the complex interaction of reality and pleasure. Um, and there's a whole pile of reasons why I think Christianity is a religion of the absurd. But the absurd is punk. Punk is the absurd. Punk is the... Uh, it, it, we have this idea of what music is and then this sound comes along we're like what the hell is that right that's the that's the feeling of the absurd everything I think I know about music and music theory they can't even play instruments it's not music or uh, Michel Duchamp uh, in his urinal where he puts a urinal in a in an art gallery mm -hmm. what is that that's the experience of the absurd Dadaism is an, is the absurd in art mm -hmm. Occupy Wall Street is the absurd in politics. What do they want? What are they demanding? No, they're putting a spoke in the wheels of our systems of, of, of our political coordinates, right? Partly what I was trying to say at the beginning. Um, Christianity for me is a religion of the absurd uh, because the crucifixion is the absurd itself. The idea that God dies is like saying square triangle. It confronts you with the opposite of what you could imagine. God, the highest being, dying on a cross. It's like it confronts you with this weird kind of absurdity. And and what what happens is if you can accept the absurd and you can accept the anxiety and you can you can turn that into something good. 
and you can live with it you can you can use it in good and productive ways but it is not about distancing yourself mm. from life mm. it sounds like a liberated space a freeing space because there's not a drive to or a need to feel or a need to but an owning or a naming of that which is yes i mean the analogy is for me is like uh sports um i've used this analogy before but i never understood sports american football because nobody ever wins nobody ultimately wins right and people win games but nobody wins the american football i guess they're playing for the american football as the ball they're playing with nobody there's there's a super bowl and however many years there's another super bowl there's not a super duper bowl where somebody just wins american football we stop it and we invent another game right and and I, so that's why I find sports frustrating. It's the never-ending story. Sure. Right? But then a friend of mine was like, no, 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 you're misunderstanding sports. Sports is about enjoying the good times, yeah, but also the bad times yeah. with your team. Enjoying being with your team through thick and thin, learning the stories of the manager and the players. And, and actually, if your team wins all the time, a certain enjoyment's taken away. Yeah. You know, I remember this happening in, in, uh, for the football team when I was young. He just won everything. Mm. And you could tell the people he supported the team mm. weren't really enjoying it. Cause, mm. you know, so what I, most of society, we think that our enjoyment is in the ultimate win. Mm. If I could get that ultimate job, that relationship, that amount of money, then I'm in. I've mm. done it. Mm. But actually, the rebel is more like how we interact with sports. We enjoy the not winning and we enjoy the wins, but we enjoy being with the team. And actually, as long as we live, there's not going to be an end to American football. Yeah. As long as we live, there's not going to be an end to what we need to do politically in the world. But we actually take that and we somehow enjoy it. Yeah. Mm. And that actually, I think, squares well with, as I understand it, your, your work in that you don't appear to be about a deconstruction and then a new reconstruction, but a constant sense of, and so ideas that that revelation requires concealment, that fidelity requires betrayal, that orthodoxy requires heresy. Yes. There's this constant dynamic uh, uh, and tension that, that's always present rather than that's the old, let's build the new. Yes, absolutely. And deconstruction in its technical sense it was never like some provisional thing that happens before construction. Mm. Um, yeah, deconstruction is like the heat that keeps your ideas molten. It's mm. always going on within. Mm. And actually being committed to a deconstructive spirit is, is not to despise structure, tradition at all. Mm. In fact, it's, it's to remain faithful to tradition by keeping it open to novelty. Mm. It's like jazz. Where you, I, I don't know much about jazz, but I'm guessing there are rules that make jazz jazz. But, with, but within the rules, there's all this innovation, yeah. constant innovation. And in this, so in the same way, you kind of have a tradition. You have a language. You have like, you've been brought up with a whole pile of stuff. Before you're able to think about your tradition, whether it's good or bad, mm. you've had 10, 20 years of just being immersed in it. Mm. So you don't think critically from nowhere. You think critically from a position. Mm. So... In a sense, you res you can respect that tradition and enjoy it, but also engage critically with it, and that's deconstruction. Mm. The never it's a never-ending process. Mm. That's the rebel. Yeah. Yeah. Pete's most recent book is called *The Divine Magician*, which explores the premise that Christianity operates in a way analogous to a magic trick. That is, with three stages: a setup, or perhaps the human condition a transformation and a revelation, or in magic parlance, the pledge, the turn and the prestige. 
we wanted to see whether Pete could distill such deep, dense ideas for a child, a child like Faith. Dad tells me, you think following Jesus is a bit like a magic trick. I like magic. I think Jesus is trying to change the world to be more loving. How does a magic trick help the world to be more loving? Oh, wow, Faith, that is a brilliant question. That is a tough question. Um, and by the way, it's a beautiful name, Faith. It's a really good name. Okay, why is Christianity a magic trick? And do I have to help a six-year-old <laughs> yeah. understand? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I used to be a youth worker. Yeah. Not that young, but, you know, <laughs> teenagers, okay. Oh, that's impossible. It's impossible <laughs> for me to do this. Impossible. Oh, um, what I'm saying is that we think that there's something that will really make us happy. Maybe it's a, a Christmas present. We want a puppy or we want a pony or we want some, some, some computer game. And we think if only we had that, that would be amazing. And then I'd be happy and, and I'd never be sad again. But of course, if we get the puppy or the pony or the computer game after a few weeks, well, it doesn't really satisfy us. We want other things. Mm -hmm. And Christianity often uh, is like that. We think that, oh, if only we say the right prayer, if only we do the right thing, if only we're good enough, then we'll be happy and everything will be wonderful. But it never works. And so that has to disappear. That idea has to just disappear entirely. And in its place something else appears. And what appears is enjoying life in the midst of all the difficulties and, and in not getting everything you want and realizing that actually it's about loving the people around us, enjoying our lives, having fun and not trying to find the thing that will will satisfy us completely, but finding satisfaction in 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 our everyday life with all its beauty and all its difficulty. Mm. So if you had to offer a summary, distilled version, the pathway of growth and transformation or, or the path of human flourishing, what is it? Yeah. So there are the traumas that happen to us and there is the trauma of being human, mm. the trauma that we are. And power of the all, and that's the universal, whoever we are in the earth, that's there. And so my, the idea of salvation that I'm exploring and what it means to flourish as a human being within the work that I do is that we come to terms with that fundamental trauma of being human. We learn to have what Paul Tillich would call the courage to be, which involves the courage to face our non-being, the lack, the gaps, the, our finitude, our unknowing. And as we find the courage to face those gaps, for some of us it's doubt. That's why I started with doubt within, with my first book, because within the church at the time, that was the lack that was there. People were having doubts, they just couldn't express, and they thought it was negative. Mm -hmm. So my work was about saying, well, what if it's positive, mm -hmm. right? But for others, it's, it's die, death. For others, it's um, the anxiety of guilt, you know, like of, of just not living up to something. Different anxieties, but it's, it's being able to face that. And as we're able to face that, we become free. Now, by the way, very quickly, so I said sin is ontological. Original sin means it's part of who we are, a gap. That sense of gap then attaches onto some object that we think will fill the gap. We think, oh, 
if we only had that, then we'll be whole and complete. Whether it's stamp collecting or, I don't know, like money or whatever, it's something that will fill that lack. Mm. And then the ethical dimension is what we do to get that. We hurt other people, we damage ourselves, we damage the environment. All of the evils and the destruction that comes from our frenetic pursuit of that sacred object. And by the way, the sacred object can be negative. Oh, we'll be whole and complete if only we get rid of those people. Mm -hmm. If only we get rid of that community, then mm -hmm. everything will be great. So the sacred object could be a scapegoat, yeah. which is some you know which carries our lag, yeah. or it can be like you know this 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 object that we we, we prize and want. Mm -hmm. But either way, it's the object that we think will fill us. And the ethical dimension is we do anything for it to flourish as a human being is to be freed from the sacred object, so that we can. Um, we can be free from what, what, what Freud called the death drive, the drive for that thing that will make us whole and complete, so, uh, which will have a benefit to our family life, our individual lives, our social lives, our communities, entire countries. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's, that's a flourishing life. Love it. Love it. <laughs> well, Peter, thank you so much. You've been incredibly generous with your time. You've been incredibly generous in hosting us. And I should share, this isn't the first time you've actually offered such generosity to me. Oh. It, it, more than 10 years ago, you came out to Australia and spoke at NCYC in Perth. Do you remember? Yeah, oh, yes, I do. I was very sick that time. Were I was you? really okay. sick. Yeah. So I think it was shortly after you had written and launched How Not to Speak of God. And so I, I was blown away. I was, I was amazed. I was absolutely uh, just loved what you were presenting and, and loved the book. And you then came to Melbourne and you were saying with a mutual friend, and I badgered this friend, thank you. I want to spend some time with Peter. Can I spend some time with Peter? And you actually offered some time and you came and I took you out for lunch and we had a lunch together. This was 10 years ago? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just, I just, I just sat at your feet for the hour and, and, uh, and, oh. and shared a meal with you and just deeply appreciate your time and generosity. So oh, uh, I wanted to uh, oh. close that, close that circle yeah. if you like and bring up. I'm glad I didn't say, I, no way, I'm not meeting you. I'm sure you tried to put it off as much as you could. <laughs> I, uh, I badgered and hassled, but uh, but uh, with with that and with thanks for that and thanks for your time here, Peter Rollins. Thank you for coming beyond room. Yeah, thank you. To hear more about Peter Rollins, go to peterrollins.com to find out about upcoming projects, movies, books, and resources. You'll also find details about a couple of retreats he's running in Northern Ireland, both later this year and into the following. Next episode is Richard Raw. Richard freaking raw. We are just so excited to bring you this interview from a man that I've quoted probably more than any other. In order to get this interview, we drove many hours across the US to arrive at the Center for Action and Contemplation in his hometown of Albuquerque, New Mexico. Now, aside from Richard Raw having a tremendous amount of wisdom to share, he's also going to help us explore the lens of contemplation. I feel the reason oh, Christianity is in such poor shape is that we got the shape of God wrong. When the shape of God is off, everything built on top of it is off. Everything. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've been saying to groups recently, I think later centuries will recognize the first 2,000 years we're still early Christianity. We're still in early Christianity. And the real cataclysmic revelation of the nature of God. It, it's ironically quantum physics and modern science and biology 
which is giving us new imagination to imagine the shape of God. Isn't that interesting? Now we thought for several centuries science was our enemy and it's ending up being our best friend. And I mean that. So join us next time as we go Beyond Green. Beyond Dream was established with the support of the Progressive Christian Network of Victoria and Common Dreams. This episode was produced by Adam Ball and relies on the wisdom and coaching of Andy Bruff. To join the mailing list or to find out more information on the podcast, monthly Beyond Dream live events or book, line and thinker, the Beyond Dream book club, go to www.beyondring.com.au.